Welcome to Discovering You, a podcast that explores the intricacies of personality and how it impacts the way we navigate through life. What will you discover today? Hi, listeners. Hi, Heather. Hi there. How are you doing today? I'm tired. Did your mood meter tell you that? Well, I kind of knew it, but I did verify it with the mood meter. And it is the one thing that really aligned with how I'm feeling. Okay, well, I got tense. (laughs) And I also knew that. I got tense, which is not surprising. I had to take Winston for his annual checkup. Nothing wrong, but he was just very upset and it got me upset. And there you go. So I'm I'm tense. (laughs) We are a team today. Tired and tense. Right? I had a really good conversation with our guest about the mood meter, and we're going to hear more about that momentarily. But before we get to that, World Baking Day is coming up. So here's a look at DISC according to Baked Goods. High D. Biscotti. A hard exterior impacts a big crunch. High I is cupcake. Sweet and charming. High S is chocolate chip cookie reliably good, and comfort food. And high C is Nanaimo bar, even layers, neat, structured. I want to give a shout out to Baker Extraordinaire and my good friend Carly for consulting with me on this. Which one of these are your favorite, Heather, and did it line up with your disc? Definitely the Nanaimo bar is my favorite, which Mm. lines up with a portion of my disc. C, I do not love biscotti. Yeah, me neither. Mine did line up too, interestingly. S is my highest factor. And out of those, chocolate chip cookie is my favorite. Amazing. Today on the show, we have a very special guest. Dr. Robin Stern is the co-founder and associate director of the Yale Center for Emotional Intelligence. She's an author, a speaker, and a licensed psychoanalyst with 30 years of experience. Dr. Stern coined the phrase gaslight effect in her book in 2007. And most recently, she is the host of the Gaslight Effect podcast. I had a great conversation with Robin Stern, and we're going to jump right in. I have to tell you part of my story now because it's very different and very much the same in some way. When I was growing up, and you're younger than I am, so you may not know the Shirley Temple movies. Oh, yes. I do know Shirley Temple movies. Yeah. My mother on Saturdays, sat me in front of Shirley Temple movies. And while she did, I don't know what, but it was a good thing because I watched these movies week after week. And I was really fascinated by and compelled by the fact that she could help people talk to each other Mm. just by being kind and loving. The promise of connectedness and love was so much of what she was about. And her little being was about being loving and being positive and optimistic. And I thought that that really is the way I want to be when I grow up. When people say, well, who were your early role models? She, as a child actress, was an early role model. So much so that when I got my PhD and I started to work, I wrote her a letter. And at the time, she didn't respond, but her whoever it was working with her responded and said she's unable to respond. But I just wanted her to know that you never know when you're going to impact someone and that the fact that her love and kindness, then kindness between people and getting people to talk to each other was what 
intrigued me as a child was came to my mind as you were talking because I didn't get it. I didn't get when people were mean to each other. And it wasn't just that I didn't like it. I thought, yeah. why do they have to do that? Why can't they instead just be kind and have a conversation? Why can't they just say what they think or what they feel yeah. and have a conversation? Why do people have to be mean? So I never really, still don't understand it, even though as a psychoanalyst, of course, I understand it, but I, I just don't understand it. It's so much nicer and promotes so much more well-being yeah. and everyone feels better when you are kind. Absolutely. Well, that sort of is a good segue into one of the questions that I guess I had for you is what drew you into this career being a psychoanalyst? Did that come first before you developed the center? So way before, because I, I was a kid at that time. And then I, um, I went on to then study psychology, not a surprise, when I was in college. But at that time, I was also very interested in relationships. And sadly, I, I thought that my parents' marriage was not that great, not the kind of marriage that I wished that they had had. While they were loving on the one hand to each other, always to me, but to each other. They also were very critical of each other, sometimes not so nice. So it was kind of binary, either loving or not so nice. It just didn't feel like something that I wish for people or for myself at the time. So I thought I want to be a divorce lawyer and fix that oh, for people. Oh, interesting. I studied the psychology thinking that that's where I was going to end up. But in order to major in psychology, I went to NYU. I had to do all these internships at hospitals and work with patients. And then I had to interview lawyers and see what their job was all about. And in that process, I realized, no, 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 that's not what I want to do. I want to do the sitting with patients part and the sitting with people and hearing their stories and helping them get out of their own way and, and figuring out what's going on. And so that's what I did. I then got a master's at the New School for Social Research graduate faculty in social psychology and personality development, and then went on to get a PhD at NYU. Mm -hmm. I had got married, had children. And when my kids went to school, I began to think, you know, who's in mm. front of the room teaching them? Like, what kind of training have they had to deal with right. kids when they're upset? Deal things that are happening, deal with divorces, things like that. And so I began to look for people who were working at the intersection of education and psychology. Around that time, I had done my own doctoral work on social intelligence and just read Dan Goleman's book at the time and called him because Shirley Temple was my model. So you could just call leaders of countries. Why can't you call Dan Goleman? Right. Of course. So this was the 1990s, right? Because before the 90s, we didn't have a concept, right, of, of emotional intelligence. That's right. So in 1990, Peter Salovey, who's now the president of Yale, of course, coined the term. And then 95, Dan Goleman published the book on emotional intelligence. And amazingly enough, Dan called me back. And so we have known each other since that time. But I then worked in a number of different organizations, NYU at Columbia, began to do some consulting. The school at Columbia University was run by a colleague of mine, Gardner Dunnan, and Gardner 
was an amazing educator, had been the head of the Dalton School in New York, which is a wonderful private school. He was very forward thinking. And so he said to me, you know what, that emotional intelligence stuff that you've been talking about, why don't you come in here and, and be a consultant and coach some of our faculty in emotional intelligence, particularly the faculty who may have some issues that we spot? And I thought, sure, why don't I do that? And so during those years, then I was invited to go to the Garrison Institute, which is an institute that brings mindfulness into all areas of life. And at that same retreat, Mark Rackett was there. Oh, okay. I was waiting for this connection. Yes. <laughs> it was totally serendipity meant to be. In fact, the whole story that I'll tell you just because <laughs> I like you and I'm enjoying this, and I feel like we're friends already. Dan Goldman had been invited to that retreat and he could not go. And so I took his place, not that I take Dan's place, but there was a spot. And so I was able to go to a retreat that I was not initially going to. So it was definitely meant to be. And so on that retreat, I met Mark Rackett. And he talked about his ruler approach to emotional intelligence. I recognized something in it that I hadn't seen in anybody else's approach. And at that point, I had worked in an organization dedicated to emotional intelligence in schools at Columbia. But what Mark's program offered that no one else did was a very discreet yes. look at emotions and also a focus on training the adults who touch the lives. So there are these wonderful programs out there, and there are wonderful programs, and they all train the adults to work with the kids. Our approach starts with the adults developing their own skills yes. of emotional intelligence so that they are back to the earlier part of our conversation. They are the models and the teachers. You said Mark already had the ruler approach. Was the mood meter tied into it at that point? Or did the mood meter come after? Because I, I want to say, so our listeners will be familiar with this. Heather and I have been starting off our podcasts using the mood meter. We talk about how is your mood today? How are you feeling? For me in my own life, even like you said, having coaches, having people working, they need to have their own awareness. So it's been a game changer for me using the mood meter because there's things that you just wouldn't realize if you haven't taken a step back. And I, this is one of my questions for you. Even just knowing <laughs> that I'm going to track my mood, it has this unintentional benefit in that I then all of a sudden take a step back. I'm able to maybe reframe something that I'm doing and to maybe even just observe it curiously, right? Like as an emotion scientist, not an emotion judge. And so you can tell me, is that an unintentional benefit? Is, is that part of it? Do you find that with yourself? And I guess I'm curious, how often do you do your mood meter? And I, I noticed the app has changed, right? The app has changed. It's called How We Feel. I'm just going to tell you today how mine is. And I don't know if you've done yours today. Mine came up. Of course, it's in the quadrant. It's the top right quadrant with yellow. And I got eager because I was very eager <laughs> to talk to you today and pick your brain and so excited to have you on the podcast. So I think that's what mine was about. That's really great. Thank you for sharing that. So I'm going to tell you the story of when I got to the center, there was ruler, the ruler approach. And at that time, we had three tools. We had the charter, the mood meter, and the blueprint. I along with Mark, uh, developed a tool called the Meta Moment that became our fourth tool because Mark and I, coming from different orientations, him for, as a researcher, me as a clinician, 
we're always interested in what's the motivation for someone to do this work? What's the motivation for someone to take a different perspective like we do in the blueprint, to consider how somebody else is feeling, to be empathic? And for me, that motivation was not just because I want to have a good relationship with you, but I want to be a better partner. I want to be the best I can be. I want to enter. I want to be somebody who is after well-being for myself. And I want to be productive. And I want to approach whatever purpose and, and meaning seeking I'm looking for in my life to my fullest potential. I want to work to my fullest potential. In order to work to my fullest potential, I want to be the best I can be. And so we took this concept that I'd been thinking about that at the time was called the intervening moment. We brought it into school language, language that would appeal to children as well as adults, and we called it the meta moment. So our meta moment is a tool that helps you. It's values-based. It's aligned with your values. And it's a tool that helps you to prolong the moment between when you're triggered and when you respond. And what's different about the meta moment than just taking a deep breath, which we do encourage, it's the beginning of the meta moment, it's the second step after you notice there's something going on, is that you invoke an image of your best self. So this image of your best self or this name of your best self is something that you can develop at a time where you're not in the middle of needing to take a meta moment, right? And we think of it as your best self is a combination of the best person, your most ideal person you want to be, and the person you ideally want people to see, you at your ideal and your reputational self. And when you come up with the adjectives for each one of those, you'll look and notice that probably there's something that is overlapping. And that overlapping adjective, for example, let's say it's kindness, whether you are being your ideal self where people are talking about you? How do you want to be spoken about? How do you want people to see you and experience you? For me, one of those adjectives would definitely be kind. And for myself, I want to be kind. And so that would be a core part of my best self. Then we have these four tools, the charter, which helps people to come to the table with how they want to feel when they are in a meeting or let's say you do a charter for that group or in a classroom, we have school charters in each classroom or how yeah. I want to feel in this meeting. Like if we wrote a charter, we would all talk about what are the feelings we want to have together right. during our meeting today. And we come up with those feelings and then we would say, okay, what will we do to ensure that that happens for all of us? the specific behaviors. And once you have that safety in the room, because you're saying, okay, I know that we're all going to engage in these behaviors, we sign the agreement, then you can go on to the mood meter and say, okay, so how do you feel? Yes. So you felt eager. I feel joyful. I feel joyful right now. Oh, that's great. Well, I'm glad we are able to chat with you while you're feeling joyful. That That makes me joyful hearing that. It is joyful to to talk to like minded women to thank you to feel seen to hopefully see you and respond to you so that you know that I'm I'm hearing you and seeing you and to be talking about something that brings hope fills me with hope for the world oh absolutely that was one of the questions i was going to ask you i've started to observe 
not major, but I have started to notice a a shift in leadership mindset. So, you know, when we're looking at leaders there, you know, they tend to be more profit focused, bottom line. But I've noticed now that there's a bit of a shift that they are seeing. I think EQ used to be seen as, quote, the soft skill. And I see it shifting now towards it being an essential skill, which I find heartening, <laughs> long overdue. And of course, I know that this is something in your work. Have, have you noticed that shift at all yourself, Robin? I certainly have. And I've also felt a hunger for it in a way that is very different. One thing that I wanted to ask you about, because, you know, Heather and I will talk about our moods at the beginning and, you know, what it means. So sometimes we'll say stuff like, I think the last time, normally we're, Heather and I are in a good mood because we're excited to record. I think the last time I was having a bit of a stressful time and somebody that had listened had said, okay, great. So now what, you know, and I think that's, that's the part. And I noticed with the newer app that, and even before it said, do you want to maintain this mood or do you want to improve it? And now uh, there's a little video that plays. So that was, that was interesting. Let's say your mood is maybe on the low side. What does that mean in terms of going forward and what can you do about it? And then as sort of the second part of that question, is there a time that you could share with us maybe where doing that yourself, the knowledge of your mood, could you tell us how maybe you approached a situation differently than you would have had you not have done it? The expression we have at the center is when you can name it, you can tame it. You can identify what you're feeling discreetly rather than just saying, I'm upset. You know, okay, that's the beginning. You recognize that you're having a feeling. But then what just happened to create that upset? Well, so-and-so didn't show up. Maybe you're disappointed. And so if you know you're disappointed, then you have a chance to address it. And there are different strategies that you can use. And in this, in how we feel, which I had the privilege of working on from my center's end, along with Mark Brackett and Zorana Pringle, there are many strategies that you can use to address different feelings. And calming down is not necessarily always the best strategy. I mean, you want to calm down so that you can think clearly because we all know that when you are activated, your frontal cortex is not working at optimal performance. I do use the mood meter frequently. And at this point, it's emblazoned in my head because while I didn't invent the mood meter, it was there when I got there. I did build the app with Mark. I live most of the time in the green, usually kind of chill and feel peaceful and good, pleasant, definitely, and optimistic, positive, except when I'm worried about my children. So my children are, my son is 36 and my daughter is 33, but I still worry about them or, and I still worry about them. My daughter is an adventurer and she traveled the world quite a bit, which was wonderful gave me a few more more than a few opportunities to use the meta moment. But I would say going into a meeting and checking in with my feelings uh, while she was studying abroad, while she was traveling around the Middle East. She spent time in Israel and in Egypt and and at some point in Qatar when she got stuck in Egypt oh, during my. the Egyptian Revolution. But during those times it's easy to call to mind going into a meeting and checking in with my feelings. Okay, I'm nervous, right. but it's manageable. So what can I do now? And sometimes what that meant is I'd take a deep breath. Sometimes what it meant is that I'd text her and just say, all okay, <laughs> I need to teach today, just checking in. She was very kind oh, and did God. right back. So I think that for me, 
my go-to strategy when I'm feeling worried would be to check in or to check myself. But it made a difference to even stop for the minute to think, right, let me check in rather than just continuing to ruminate. Yeah. And I think that's the point that I was saying too about just thinking about it. And and I think even just acknowledging, you know, sometimes people are very in the here and now in that they're like, oh, I don't know what's wrong with me or that, you know, they're reacting to something that's said in a meeting and they are just trying to frame that up as to, oh, well, that person said that. So that made me angry without considering maybe you didn't have a perfect day leading into this, right? Maybe you were worried about your child who's overseas or maybe you had a toddler that had a tantrum in the morning and you just were worn out and drained by the time you got to work. And I think that's where the whole like incidental emotions and integral emotions come into play. So is this actually something that's happening in the moment or is this a carryover from something that was this morning? And I think that's what's great about the mood meters. It kind of really forces you to do that. And honestly, there's days where I don't know that I would have come to that realization if I hadn't looked at the mood meter and really thought it through, thought about how the day had gone so far. And then, yeah, then I walk into that meeting with so much more self-awareness than I would have without it. I think it's amazing. Thanks. I'm glad it's helpful for you. And and I appreciate your kind words because I think it can be game-changing and is game-changing for, for many people, not just to, to be able to know that you're feeling something, but to be able to see a, a palette of feelings and say, okay, no, this is not quite right. And to learn the nuances of feelings and to not clump it all together. We, we say, you know, are you a clumper? Yes, you know, you're angry and upset, but what actually are maybe the discrete feelings that you're having and what is that was appealing to me when I first met Mark was the science behind that, his dedication to making sure that people were paying attention, not just to the fact that they were feeling, but in fact, what were they feeling? Oh, yeah. And being able to label that and, and enhance your vocabulary. I mean, after all, it's about like being seen and heard. And if you can communicate accurately, then you have a much better chance. That whole thing really reminds me of, and have you seen um, Brene Brown's book that she had, Atlas of the Heart? And she starts with a quote, and I'm probably going to get it wrong, but the quote is, the limits of my language are the limits of my world. And it's not her quote. It's, I think, it's a, I'm not even going to attempt the name, but Wittgenstein, I think is the guy's name, Ludwig Wittgenstein. But I was like, oh my God, I really sad in that. And, and she talked about how most people could only identify three emotions, happy, sad, angry. And I know there's right. a little bit of debate over this. She has 87 that she mentions in the book. Not everybody agrees with that. But the point is. No, we say it's 2000 words that describe your feeling life. Right. Okay. So isn't that crazy when you think about that? that we just put it down to those buckets of very basic words and so much is missing in between. And if we had, well, the vocabulary, but also the environment and the acceptance to be able to go deep and be able to feel that, I think so many misunderstandings and hurt feelings would go away by everyone doing this. So I'm a huge proponent of using it in my line of work. And I also have to geek out a little bit about this. So I I am certified in DISC with DISC theory. I have to ask the whole model of DISC, the colors, the way the quadrants are set up. Do you know in terms of ruler, was it inspired by DISC? 
So I was not on the science team inventing the mood meter. So I'm going to say that up front. By the time I got there, the mood meter was in existence. But I do know it was based on the circumplex model of emotion and that Mark led the team to add the colors to the mood meter through research and surveys and science on his own. So I guess one of my questions, I know a lot of what you do is around educators, schools. I believe there's some stuff that you do with businesses. You could correct me if I'm wrong, but this is probably somewhat self-serving because I am more in the business end of it. Leaders tend to be very sharp eye on results, the bottom line. And so how would you convince them that prioritizing emotional intelligence and maybe adopting the ruler approach into their work culture would be of benefit to them? That's an easier answer than, than you would think. Mark and I were part of the founding team of OG Life Lab, OJI. And so that is a business solution, bringing emotional intelligence to organizations through emotional intelligence and other important modules now, decision-making and dealing, uh, how do you be a first-time manager? And Do you find, though, that a leader or people who are very much in the business world what tends to be their reaction to it? Do, do you, are you finding that they are resistant to that? It really depends. We have nurses doing it to onboard uh, leaders of nursing at Yale New Haven Hospital, at St. Jude Hospital now uh, in Memphis, Tennessee, are using OG Life Lab and doctors at St. Jude as well. We brought it to doctors at Yale New Haven. We work with Amazon. We work with many big companies and the the reviews are amazing. And sometimes people are skeptical, you know, just like people are yeah. skeptical about emotional intelligence. Because they say, well, I wouldn't have gotten to where I am leader of this organization if I wasn't didn't right. already have it. So I don't need it. <laughs> but in fact, you know, what the thing that most derails people from being the leader they want or getting the reviews they want or being able to go on and manage people well is a lack of ability in self-regulation. So you may be skilled in being aware and maybe you're skilled even in labeling your emotion. But if you're not skilled in regulating your emotion, then it's (laughs) going to regulate you. You are going to be in trouble. We're fond of saying things like, you know, one eye roll Mm. can cost you a relationship. One outburst in a meeting can create a situation where you don't get a promotion. And the other piece that's lesser known and perhaps lesser talked about is it's really impossible to be creative if you don't have skills. Because the creative process involves being able to take a risk. And if you can't manage your emotions around anxiety to take a risk, Uh, If you can't manage your emotions around the disappointment when it might not work out the first or the second or the third, you're likely not never to bring that creative idea forward. That's a great point. And I think also that, that leaders who promote psychological safety have the best results. Dysregulated groups or groups that, for example, gaslight, People that gaslight each other is the that's the opposite of psychological safety. When you said that, I was like, "Oh well, that's a that's a good opportunity for me to uh, shift gears a bit," because I know that this is definitely the direction your work has taken with 
you know, you have a new podcast, The Gaslight Effect, which is based on your book from 2007, I believe. You have a new book, which is a recovery guide. Can you just tell us in your own terms, I guess, for those of us who haven't heard, now I know gaslighting was the word of the year last year, so I think most of us know it. And you must have been like, ah, I know that. I've been talking about that since 2007. But can you just tell us, I guess, for those of us who don't, who haven't heard or aren't familiar with it, what is gaslighting? So I'm actually going to read it right from my book. Gaslighting is an insidious and sometimes covert form of emotional abuse repeated over time. And that's a really important piece of it, repeated over time, where the abuser leads the target to question their judgments, reality, and in extreme cases, their own sanity. Gaslighting is a type of psychological manipulation in which a gaslighter, the more powerful person in the relationship, again, important because gaslighting turns around power, tries to convince you that you're misremembering, misunderstanding, misinterpreting your own behavior or motivations, thus creating doubt in your mind that leaves you vulnerable and confused. Wow. Well, I'm glad you read it because that was very nuanced, which I love so much. I think we're always trying to paint things into a corner, like very binary. So I like that there was nuance in it. And I guess my question for you is what were you seeing in perhaps your practice or even your personal life that really prompted you to write this? I was seeing women who were otherwise confident, grounded in their own reality, good decision makers and strong-minded in relationships where they gave over their power to the pairing I saw most often was a woman with a man, to a man in their life they were suddenly second-guessing themselves. Well, you know, maybe he's right that we're not affectionate anymore because I don't travel with him on business trips and I'm not around him often enough. When he first told me that, I thought that was ridiculous, but he keeps insisting that I don't know what I'm talking about, that if I traveled with him, we'd have more intimacy. If I traveled with him, things would be better. (sighs) Maybe I'm crazy. Maybe I don't get it. I was seeing that over and over in in many cases in in my practice. And I was seeing it in my friends, women who were in other relationships, not just uh, in their workplace, but in other relationships, not afraid to say what they think, confident Mm. about their opinion, second guessing themselves, feeling confused and pointing the finger at themselves and saying, like, what's wrong with me? And I experienced it myself as well, not in a maniacal way. My ex-husband was not like a maniacal person, like in the Gaslight movie from 1944, where the husband was trying to drive his wife crazy so he could steal her wealth or jewels. But whenever he was confronted, it would suddenly be about me. So for example, when he was late repeatedly, and I would say to him, you're late. Can you call, please? You know, just let me know. It's fine if it has to happen. I'd really appreciate it if you're if you'd be on time. Uh, it's hurtful when I've spent all this time preparing dinner or we're waiting for you or whatever the situation. And he would always say, "You have a problem with time." Oh. <laughs> and of course, I knew I didn't. Of course, when he first told me that, I said, "No, I have no problem." But over time, despite the fact that I was working on this book and on this concept, 
I could feel myself second guessing and I could watch it happening. It's his certainty, right? And my, my willingness to take a step back. And, you know, there's nothing wrong with taking a step back and saying, you know, could it be me? But when it's so clearly not you, and he keeps insisting that it is you, that it is you. It's like listening to one channel and only one channel. And that's what you come to believe. Is there a certain personality or behavioral style that is more prone to be either a perpetrator of gaslighting or the recipient of, of gaslighting? I would say no. No, not a personality style, but there are vulnerabilities. If you are very empathic, if you are very agreeable, if you are used to accommodating, if you um, want things to to be peaceful, and you're always willing to smooth it over so it can be peaceful, you're vulnerable. If you like to be right, if it's important to you that everybody thinks the way you feel, you're more likely. And if you've seen it, if you've seen that one way to control the moment is to flip the table, to flip the script. So I couldn't reach you today or, or I haven't been able to reach you while, while you're away. You are so paranoid. What is your problem? And so maybe I am paranoid, but you know what? Right. I still couldn't reach you. Like, where were you? Right? And so if you don't like to be confronted, if you are caught in a lie, if you want to deflect and you've learned that that works, one of the reasons people do gaslighting is that it works. And I hope you'll come on my podcast. Oh, my gosh. I would love to. Absolutely. Yes. So the question I was going to ask you is, you know, when you're describing gaslighting, can gaslighting show up in the workplace? So I could see it with like a one-off or one person, but can a whole culture in an office be about gaslighting from the leadership down? Have you ever seen that or is that a possibility? Yes, I have. And yes, it's a possibility. So you feel like, wait a minute, like there's something, something going on here. There's something wrong. Or you realize that by stepping out of your culture and going into another culture, and this happens in families too, that you've been living in a way that you accept it as the air you breathe. This is just the way things run in an organization. And then you step aside and and maybe not. Or, you know, more usual, things are going on. You're noticing certain people are suddenly getting invited to meetings and you're not. You just sense something is different. And you say to your supervisor, something going on, are we, we having organizational changes? And they say, no, no, mm-hmm. no. Maybe you're a little stressed out right now. Maybe you, maybe you need to take time off. And then turns out they were stressed out, but there were still those things going on. Yeah. And I just want to make a point that in telling these stories, sometimes, you know, we're smiling together because we're in recognition that, that this is happening. But in life, in the day-to-day of it, gaslighting can be soul-destroying. 
and it is not at all funny. And sometimes I catch myself like I just did now, you know, yeah, so you think that people are saying these things to you and it, it's kind of absurd and, and we can all recognize that. But but when you're going through it, you can feel like you're crazy because you know something's going on. And that that is something that I want to leave our listeners. You know, when you aren't comfortable because you feel like there's something going on, there is something going on. And you may not know exactly what it is, but trust your trust your intuition. Trust your instincts. Yeah. That inner voice. Definitely. That inner voice. Okay. So my final question for you, uh, Robin, is is there anything you could say to our listeners who may be either experiencing it right now in a, in a work or a personal relationship? And is there any advice you have to even perhaps preventing it from happening in the first place? Well, that's not a simple one minute question. So I would say definitely listen to my podcast, buy the Gaslight Recovery book, Gaslight Effect Recovery book, but listen to yourself, be brave enough, get to a point where you have gathered your resources, that you feel safe, you have a place to go if you have to leave, you have social support and be brave enough to to say to yourself, if this doesn't stop, I have to leave. Or if this doesn't stop, I can't leave, but I'm going to limit as much as I possibly can interactions with this person. Begin to take care of yourself and to do things for yourself that remind you that you do know how to think clearly, that remind you that you do have agency Take a step away, even if it's go out for a cup of coffee every day by yourself so that you have a moment to get back to that inner voice. Yes. Thank you so much. Honestly, it was a true pleasure to have you. I'm so excited because they said, you know, when I said to Heather, oh, my gosh, she worked on the mood meter. This is what we talk about. This is right in my wheelhouse. So it was really an honor to speak to you. Thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Well, it was an honor to be here. And as I said, joyful, really joyful to to, to be with both of you. And um, we'll reach out to you from my team to, to invite you on the podcast and continue using How We Feel because it is really it is. a fantastic app and, and a game changer. And thank you so much for, for all the work you do to keep people safe and healthy and, and pursuing well-being in their own lives. This show is a Twisted Spur media production produced by our very own Heather McPherson. Thanks for listening. Remember, send in your questions to be featured on a future episode and subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast app.